Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley, and joining me on the other line, just back from his long stay at the Sad Motel, it's John McMahon. Hi, thanks, Danielle. It was a very, very depressing motel stay, I must <laughs> say. Me and Philip, like, really feeling some empathy for one another at these mediocre hotels of the greater Northern Virginia region. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like a hotel that uh, a hotel or a motel we probably would have decided to stay at instead of a conference hotel. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, that's the, and that's the closest we will ever get to the experience of Philip or Elizabeth Jennings. There you is, go. You know, the travel agent they have to go see us go stay at this shitty motel, <laughs> and that's where we would have chose. I can definitely think of the specific conferences in which I'm like I was at the like equivalent of the mediocre motel instead of the very expensive conference hotel. My first APT, I was like, oh, this is this, uh, the conference hotel is like very expensive. I'm a grad student. I can't, I can't stay there. I'm like, this hotel is a mile away. It's fine. But like a mile in Ann Arbor is like walking on the highway. <laughs> so <laughs> I stayed at the cheap option, uh, the cheapest option of the APT Ann Arbor uh, hotels. I also have done, so I don't know if either of them have watched the Americans. They might never be guests, but, uh, there was also a tradition that was started of me and Joanna Tice and Rachel Brown, uh, who, you know, some of the, at least Rachel, yeah. um, where we would, you know, share hotel rooms at conferences to save on some money and read each other scary stories at night with the flashlight <laughs> from our phone out of the Bible placed in it, open a random page, tell a scary story in the dark. Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> like, absolutely not. I, I honestly can't think of like a thing I would rather do less in my whole life. Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> if Danielle's recovered from that, uh, we'll give her a second. Uh, we're still recovering from the Hamley extravaganza of the previous episode. Oh, yeah. I'm still recovering. I've, I, you know, I've, as you point out over text, this is a Danielle line, not me, that both, we're both still shook by the, our Philip and Clark, the same person conversation. Tori, so shouts to Tori. Tori texted the like sister group text on like Wednesday morning to be like, still can't get over the fact that Philip and Clark are the same person. And like, we <laughs> recorded this on Sunday. So still shook is, is definitely right. So, as I can make uh, an abrupt pivot to yes. episode nine of season one of The Americans, Safe House, which is written by Joshua Brand and directed by Jim McKay. And, uh, Daniel, do you have an IMDb summary for us? Okay. The IMDb summary says, Philip and Elizabeth shock their children when they announce they are separating. After Amador goes missing, Gad orders an unauthorized miss- mission to grab a KGB agent in retaliation. Events do... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, take it from the top. You're good. Okay. Philip and Elizabeth shock their children when they announce they are separating. After Amador goes missing, Gad orders an unauthorized mission to grab a KGB agent in retaliation. Events soon spin out of control and come to a grisly end. 
Grizzly indeed. So let's start, though, where the IMDb summary starts, actually, which this is maybe one of the best IMDb summaries we've read so far. 100%. And that is that they frame it as Philip and Elizabeth shocking their children, announcing the separation. And did you find that in the moment and the way the show structures it, both in relation to the last episode and as the cold open into that scene, was that shocking to you? Absolutely. I honestly couldn't believe that, like, we were already at the let's tell our children, like, phase of this. That feels like a, like they just brought it up to each other and all of a sudden it's, like, happening and they're telling their children. And we sort of get the sense that this is, like, really escalated quickly um, in terms of, in terms of the timeline. Because we don't actually see the conversation or multiple conversations of Philip and Elizabeth making this final decision, figuring out what they're going to say to the kids. Like, all of that happens off screen since the end of the previous episode. And that just dropping us straight into the conversation with the kids is quite jarring, which I'm sure is meant to put us in the position of the kids who are utterly and totally shocked, right? Paige and Henry, totally baffled by this, understandably so. And it seems, though, and this would make sense given the kind of emotional relations of these two spies slash quasi partners, is that they don't seem exactly on the same page with what they're saying to the kids. No, not at all. But also, I think the thing that was surprising to me is it felt like they hadn't had very many of those conversations, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That this is, that we're not too far out of where the last episode ended. And I think, like, I'm getting a little bit of that from the, like, FBI bro huddle happening in Stan's living room. It feels very soon after the events of the last episode. It does. And I mean, it's also played for laughs as well in a certain way, that opening scene, because the actual open of it is Henry being like, I love fried chicken. We should have that for dinner every day. Or her or yeah. he and Paige are yeah. bantering back and forth. And then when they get ready to share the news, like at this point, we as listeners understand what they're about to say. Paige thinks that Elizabeth is pregnant and is like, you are way too old to be having another baby. My friend's mom is having a baby and she's ancient and you're way older than her. Paige, a little age and body shaming happening there. Just a little bit. (laughs) Don't love it. (laughs) Um, And then they're like, no, we're hitting the pause button and that, Hitting the pause button, we'll get back to later in the episode, I'm sure. <laughs> and they say it's not that they're not actually separating. They like cameras cutting very, very quickly from each all of their faces one yeah. to the other. There's just a very off kilter tone and structure to the scene. Well, and I think the we get sort of the companion scene later when Paige and Henry are like, Dad, we don't want you to leave in the middle of the party. Mm-hmm. like aggressive and like and he's like well it's like not up to me right like it's not my decision and so I think to sort of answer some of our questions Philip answers some of our questions there which is like they're not on the same page he clearly is on the like let's figure things out yeah. and Elizabeth is not but that also is like that's the dynamic of their relationship Elizabeth is the one who's like more than more than the other in control. 
Absolutely. Reference to an episode title from Daniel and another episode. Very advanced <laughs> podcasting from from my co-host over there. In fact, there. the episode that just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> Which gives you listeners a cue as to how and a weird temporality we're, we're doing this. And I mean, in the structure of the episode as a whole, like we get the scene, we get the Beeman party scene which are both very intimate, familial, personal yeah. sorts of scenes in an episode called Safe House. And we're meant to you know, ask the question, well, is the Jennings household a safe house? No, it's not, obviously. Um, is the Beeman house a safe house? Not no, so much. Yeah. Um, are the so safe houses safe? <laughs> no, they are not. No, they are not. Um, and then it turns into a, like, probably the most plot-intense... And not saying a lot for the first season of the Americans, (laughs) the most plot intense episode so far. Yeah, I think so. The most plot intense and also the episode where we are getting, I think since the the first couple of episodes of the season, the episode where we're getting the most intense amount of Philip and Elizabeth one-on-one without like other characters intervening there. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we've in the last few episodes often had Philip and Elizabeth and Claudia, Philip and Elizabeth and Stan, like, right. Like other people sort of in the mix and it's just, it's Philip and Elizabeth. They've got to figure it out. It's only a little bit later that we hear that Elizabeth has like talked to Claudia, but that doesn't happen on screen. It's a lot of just them together. So I think, like, not only is the episode intense, but the sort of one-on-one time there is intense and, I think, made more so by the fact that the episode starts out with their separation. Yeah, because the one-on-one intensity and the smaller scale, arguably, is happening at the kitchen table or right after totally. the kitchen table or at the party, like the, or at least the family unit conversations, yeah. but also the one-on-one conversation between Philip and Elizabeth, between Elizabeth and Sandy, between Paige and Matthew, yeah. right? All these, uh, between Chris and Stan, like all of these yeah. small one-on-one conversations that are happening among the broader social fabric of fried chicken at the dinner table or yeah. like neighborhood party on Sunday afternoon or whatever it is. Exactly. And I'm, I'm happy that you brought up the Chris and Stan, um, the Chris and Stan conversation, because it was like another one of those just like, oh God, like Amador, like eye roll, but also like, what a great way to go out (laughs) as having like one of your douchiest conversations at this family party, which I want to come back to in a little bit. But the other thing I wanted to say about the sort of like the Jennings family, even going to this barbecue or to this party. What are they doing there? Get out of there. Like, if this had just happened in my family or your family, no one is at, like, the neighbors altogether. Like, then someone has to go on a business trip or someone's not there. Like, this is, that's, like, not how, like, suburban families in the 80s would have handled that situation. Can I offer an alternative reading of this passage? Yeah. (laughs) And that is... Yes, Leo Strauss, please. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I'm done. After that, I have no alternatives. Um, uh, Little theory joke for for the people. (laughs) For the real ones. (laughs) (laughs) That I think what we're maybe meant to identify in the fact that they go to the party nonetheless is the sheer willingness to engage in emotional repression and or suppression of the bourgeois suburban family 
so that they're not necessarily putting on a happy face. They're disagreeing with one another. Sandy and Elizabeth have this conversation about what happened, but they're willing to stifle the emotions, you know, for the, in the service of the spy aspect and potentially in the service of the whole bourgeois family aspect of it all in order to go to the party and exist in that space. And I say that also like thinking about the emotional dynamics of the families in future seasons as well is why I'm on this like emotional repression, suppression jag. Yeah. And I guess like, actually that is something that does feel true to the eighties. Right. And to the, like the, family life in the 80s. So yeah, I'm willing to accept that. I just practically am like, what are you doing at this party? Get out of there. <laughs> and they and they do have, to your point, they do have a conversation about that, right? <laughs> Philip's like, why are we, we're not going to go to this party, you know, Elizabeth, or do I have it backwards? One of them is like, really one is like, well, we have to go a bunch of, I think Philip says we have yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? A bunch of Stan's FBI yeah. you know, colleagues or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, like, it makes sense in the in terms of the plot, why they are there, but also, like, the the practicality of being there just still <laughs> seems crazy to me. It is. It is. So from one shocking moment to the next of this episode of A the great American, segue. Thank you. Um, but the episode itself has a really fascinating segue to the second shocking moment as well. Like, the plot mechanics of it are quite fascinating i think yeah so it's because philip and elizabeth have separated now philip is out in his sad motel in peterborough virginia (laughs) uh that he's now free to spend the night at martha's martha confesses um her love to him after some very intense sex between the two of them very uncomfortable moment for a lot of different reasons (laughs) don't worry folks we're getting there later right (laughs) stick around for gloss yeah talk about all of it and so uh, Martha kind of begs Clark slash Philip to stay, and Clark now can because he doesn't have to be home, right? It's not like the Beemans are going to notice him not there in the morning or whatever when they wake up. And it's only because this is the first night in which Clark has stayed the night at Martha's apartment that he is there to be accosted by Chris Amador the next morning. And thus the whole second shocking plot of this episode is clicked into place by the first shocking development of the episode yeah i guess so i have a question for you and like obviously you've seen the show before but were you what was the maybe the first time you saw this or even this time like were you worried about chris being there because like we do end the like the episode previous we do see that he's starting to like get curious about what's up so were you sort of like on the edge of your seat a little bit, like, oh no, is there going to be a confrontation? Because I was. You're a better viewer than I am, clearly, or <laughs> more like perspicacious viewer than I am, because I didn't, I bet I got that like 10 seconds after you did. And it's only after Clark comes out the door and the camera work they're doing, their kind of camera work and cinematography that they do when they're doing surveillance or spying yeah, yeah, or something yeah. dramatic about I to see. happen. Um, like, some sort of encounter was going to happen. So it's only once that camera work started that the first time I saw this, I was like, oh no, shit's about to go down. I see. And I was like, the minute he walks out the door, I was like, oh, 
is Chris going to show up? Is someone who like knows that he's Philip going to show up? Like, like, is there going to be something like that? Because I think for me, my anxiety for the characters in the show is that their, their aliases are going to be found out. Right. Like, I think that's part of my like frustration with, with like wigs is that I'm like, how could anybody be so stupid? But then last episode we did I have say, I mean, I think, you know, if, if only Philip knew, um, how good the Clark disguise actually was, he could have maybe tried a less confrontational method with our friend Chris Amador. Yeah, but I just I just wanted to see I wanted to clock like where you were on on tracking that because my first like he walks out the door and I'm like, oh, no. And then I think the thing to go back to your point from a moment ago, the thing that's so shocking is we the like the escalation of that scene is so quick, sort of shocking in the same like, okay, we're just starting the episode and we're breaking up right in the same way we like. Chris has his FBI badge out. Philip is like, we were fucking all night or like some other like very egregious, like, like, uh, dirty explanation to like rile him up a little bit. Um, and then Chris has got a knife. Like what, what's happening here? Why does Chris pull the knife is such an important question because I think it points to a broader like thematic or emotional connection that you just hinted at Danielle. And that is much as we could ask the question, what percentage of Chris being at Martha's the night, you know, the episode before or this morning is bro toxic masculinity. Like this is the one who got away. So I'm going to stalk her versus his FBI counterintelligence intuition saying, actually something's really happening here. And that is all kind of brought to a head when Philip takes the tact of, I'm going to like give the broiest possible response yeah. to Chris. So now the both Chris's FBI and bullshit masculinity detectors are so set off that then the escalation happens. He pulls the knife. Great fight choreography and Philip great. ends up stabbing Chris. Great stunt work. And Philip uh, ends up stabbing Chris in the gut. Well, and I think that that's something also that's so surprising is like the fact that it ends in Chris being stabbed was an, was like a further escalation of this moment that is already like, it, it makes sense in terms of all of the different flags are up, right? Yeah. And everything is heightened, but the like being stabbed is, is like a huge escalation just in terms of, in terms of stakes, in terms of plot movement in terms of plot mechanics, like then, then we've seen in the last few episodes, which themselves have been, have like staged a number of different kinds of escalations. Exactly. And of course, I mean, we didn't note this, but it's, it's worth noting just because of, it speaks to the condition of limited agency that she finds herself in that Clark rushes out so quickly because Martha is like, I think they're going to kill a KGB agent. Right, right. right. So Mar- not only did Martha like bring Clark in under the guise of this genuine, you know, budding love or relationship or whatever, but then her willingness to you know, say, I will do anything for you that you ask me to, parentheses at work, is leads her to say this, which leads her to get Clark to go out so quickly, which leads to Clark being so on edge when Chris shows up. Yeah. And it's, and, I, you know, I hadn't even thought of that because I guess there is a way to read this interaction between Clark and Chris 
where is like he pulls his FBI card. Does Clark think that he's the KGB agent that's about to be abducted? And that wasn't the way that I was reading that. I was just reading that as like, I like KGB versus FBI without that sort of like other layer. But I think that like thinking about how quickly he left the apartment, the sort of intensity, like it's, I think the worry of like, oh, am I the person who's about to be abducted versus like someone's just like challenging my position is is key here. And then we kind of have, I mean, it's a structural question for the episode, a structural question for us talking about it. We should follow maybe the Chris plot and then work back to the Vlad. Yeah, that's not, yeah that seems right. I mean, what... We get several scenes of Philip and Chris after Chris has been stabbed. They're in like a warehouse or a parking garage or something. One of the many uh, safe houses, if you will, that the Jennings have set up around the area. They are kind of tending to Chris's wounds with the limited medical ability they have. And then as this is happening and they're trying to get information out of Chris, we get a bunch of, to your point earlier, Danielle, a number of one-on-one scenes of Philip and Elizabeth yeah. talking through the Chris situation, which is also about them, which is also about their kids, which is also about their separation. Yeah. So how were you making sense of the multiple conversations between Philip and Elizabeth that happened around the fact that Philip stabbed Amador? Well, I think that like this was a moment where, or these conversations to me illustrate the sort of high stakes of, of what's happening here, because I do think that in the past, Philip has sort of had, you know, he's maybe a little bit more reluctant to like, to put everything out on the table for Elizabeth. But from the beginning, we get like, they're going after a KGB agent, like everything is out there for him. And so I think that part of it is like, okay, if our relationship is stripped down to only the professional, then there isn't the like, there, there isn't the testing the waters around each other mm-hmm. anymore, mm-hmm. which I think, mm-hmm. like, going back to the last episode, right, like, the uh, sort of emotional baggage that they were carrying into missions, we see that stri- fully stripped away. And I think that was the dominant sort of the, – the dominant takeaway that I had in the interactions between Philip and Elizabeth is this, like, fully stripped down, no sugarcoating, no emotions of the, like, I messed up. Like, they're going to kill a KGB agent. Like, what did Claudia say? Like, all of these are very matter-of-fact. And we haven't had a lot of of matter-of-fact from Philip over Mm -hmm. the last few episodes. Very true. And, I mean, while there are still some disagreements about them, right, Philip at one point suggests taking him or saying he has to get to a hospital. And Elizabeth saying, well, we'll just do the best we can. Like, we can't do take him to a hospital. That's, you know, the worst idea. But they actually end up, having very little conflict about this situation, about what yeah. to do with Chris, how to handle the situation. I mean, to the point that you just made, having stripped away the se- semi-facade of their marriage slash love relationship, right? What is left is the fact that they are actually very effective at working together as partners, not necessarily effective spies. I think this first season is especially coming on the heels of the previous episode, asking us and coming on the heels of the previously on segment that opens how effective they are in these episodes as spies is I think an open question. Yeah. As two people working together towards a goal, they're kind of shockingly uh, efficient or efficacious. 
Yeah. And like, they know each other's moves. Right. And, and I think that is something like sort of stripping down their relationship to the professional aspects of it reminds us that they like, they work in tandem together and have for so long, which I think again, like to go back to the end of the last, last episode where Elizabeth is like, this is our worst failure in 15 years. Yes. Right. Like this is them coming back from that failure. Yeah. I also, I, I think like, the question of emotions here, I just want to touch on quickly, right? So we've like stripped away the emo- the like heavy emotions between Philip and Elizabeth, but I do think that like there is a certain degree of emotionality that like Philip is is bringing into the conflict with Amador, right? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly around like his position being challenged, and I think like emotionality and masculinity are are sort of like functioning as two different and related lenses that we might like put on here they sure are and the episode does something interesting with the way they use the background friendship of chris and stan coming together as partners to comment on the jennings in relation to amador yeah this is not i mean chris is like in much too bad of a state to be able to engage in much more than like Broy banter with Elizabeth. Elizabeth seems to appreciate, or like Carrie Russell acts as if Elizabeth kind of is like, "I'm impressed that you're able to have these like stupid jokes yeah. um, in the state that you're in." But so there's two things in particular. We see Amador giving this speech at some time ago to Stan about how he's a lone wolf, how he is unencumbered. Yeah, um, and we're I presume meant to contrast that with the deep emotional legal political institutional and familial encumbrance of the jenningses Mm -hmm. in the episode right so they are the exact opposite of lone wolves right they're the they're the pack right (laughs) ultimately to take the metaphor probably way too literally and then there's a second time that this kind of commenting happens and that Amador in one of the other scenes with Stan, and we'll get to the weirdness of the rest of this conversation. <sighs> but at one point he says, there's no pause button or no pause button on life. I forget the yeah. exact context. When the episode opened with Phil with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth telling the kids saying, we're taking a pause or we're hitting the pause button. If we think about the authenticity of, of these relationships, like Amador is kind of a jerk, but like he's real, right? Like at least the show is putting that out there for us. We'll come back to yeah. this in, in Danielle Dossier briefly. And <laughs> the like relationship between Philip and Elizabeth is not real or like mm-hmm. the, the marriage part of the relationship is not real. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, there's no pause on life, but there can be a pause on a fake marriage, right? Like, mm, like yeah. what there can and can't be pauses on, I think is something the show is asking us to think a little bit about, even though Amador is not the most lovable character, there's something incredibly authentic about him. That's a wonderful point, especially because the realist Amador or the realist emotional Amador mm-hmm. is actually his relationship with Stan. Yeah. And yes, like it's a very like homosocial relationship, <laughs> yeah. like premised in heterosexuality, <laughs> but there is this genuine connection that we see way more in this episode, of course, both mm-hmm. from Chris and in the flashbacks and from Stan when Stan goes to see Chris's apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the emotional bond that those two had actually gets some shine in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, 
we're, I think that we're meant to juxtapose that to the emotional bond that Philip and Elizabeth like yeah. were building and have, have like have left behind at least momentarily. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and pour one out for Maximiliano Hernandez, <laughs> who is the actor who plays Chris Amador. Yeah. And like, Amador is a, at times, oddly written character, although as to Danielle's points that she's been making, there's a way in which this episode clarifies some of the depth of yeah. Chris's um, existence and character and emotional life on the show. But given however the character is written, Maximiliano Hernandez is just excellent at playing this character. Absolutely. And so, like, I will, you know, he's a strange character to have, but I will miss that actor playing this character on this show. Yeah, and I'll just, I'll miss the banter, right? Like, there, there is something really nice about the, the sort of, like, like, the doofiness of his character, just jabbing at Stan a little bit, yeah. who, like, mm-hmm. needs that. A billion percent Stan needs that. Um, I mean, this is not, a, I don't feel bad giving the spoiler. Like, Stan gets a new partner, and I also love the relationship between the two of them and the way that his future partner at the FBI, like, fits into fits into the organization and the institution. Um, but nice. it's, it's, a, it's a different vibe than the Stan-Chris relationship. Maybe less douchey. <laughs> less douchey for sure. Okay. So speaking of Stan, Danielle, um, the other half of the spy retaliation plots are that after Stan is like, I'm not doing any extrajudicial killings or kidnappings of KGB agents, which like surprisingly and good for you, Stan, um, initially at the party and then reaffirms that he's not going to do it to Amador. Yeah. But once Amador is captured, Stan, first of all, actually has some good detective work, which we haven't necessarily seen him do a bunch of in this show so far, when he's like, there are no prints on the car, there's something weird, there's something up here, so it's not just pure paranoia on his part. But he ends up then deciding, all right, I'm going to join this like extrajudicial killing plot where they're going to attempt to kidnap and and kill Arkady, the resident of uh, the KGB Residentura. Um, in Washington, for reasons we will get into later, because it's too absurd to mention at this juncture, Arkady does not go on the run, and his it's only his running buddy Vlad Vlad Kasigan who we get um, in stand defies orders and takes Vlad captive instead. Yeah, it's all so. I have just a couple of points. One, I think that it. It is in character for Stan to not want to take part in something extrajudicial, right? Which makes the heel turn here, like, Mm -hmm. even more... It it puts emphasis on it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that we... And I think that emphasis is is built up and threaded through the episode with all of these flashbacks that we're seeing of, like, him and Amador, which some of them are just wild. (laughs) Like, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. So... First, just to like put a, a point on surprising nature of Stan taking part in this. And then, right? So then we get a like further ratcheting up when he defies orders. And then like even further, right? When he, when he kills Vlad at the end of the episode, and there's plenty to unpack in between there. But I just want to emphasize just how if. Philip and Elizabeth's relationship right now is sort of devoid of emotion or devoid of emotionality between the two of them. 
one thing that we know about Stan is he's like all emotions all the time, right? Like (laughs) part of why he can't talk to Sandy is like, he doesn't know how to like go half in, right? He doesn't seem to half-ass anything. Right. And and so while whole-assing Nina's situation. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) uh, Literally um, is zero-assing his relationship with Sandy. Exactly. Exactly. And so like the fact that Stan's like, he makes this heel turn. He's like, all right, I'm in. And then defies orders. And then later, like, kills uh, kills Vlad. Like, while those are surprising developments in terms of the plot, they are they do seem to me consistent with Stan's character. Like, once he's made a decision, like, he is fully in it, right? That I that I think is precisely correct. That's a really good interpretation of what of what's happening in here. And there's this additional contrast between Stan and then Philip and Elizabeth uh, that I think feeds into the one you just drew. And that is the way in which in this moment of crisis, after what is kind of, or potentially is a fuck up, Philip and Elizabeth are relatively calm, relatively like coldly rational in their thinking Yeah, to the point that like, they are more interested mostly to interrogate him, but I read it as slightly care for another human like maybe eight percent that in giving some medical care to chris um although they're probably going to kill him in the end anyway and the end anyway so it doesn't really matter but all that is to say that like we see philip and elizabeth stay relatively calm and think through the situation and stan is just pure chaos pure frenetic energy without well maybe not without intentionality or that becomes this hyper intentionality on like well any kgb person will do or any soviet will do yeah yeah no i think that that's right and i think the the sort of continuing to think these episodes of violence together is productive because we do have like a real calmness with philip and elizabeth and like the minute that stan is in that trunk i'm like well this guy's gonna die when someone goes in a trunk with the KGB, like, eventually they end up dead. Only when Elizabeth climbs into a trunk while the car is lifted off the ground <laughs> at the mechanics is the only good time to enter a trunk. One million percent. If the if the car is suspended, we're okay with people <laughs> being in trunks. But so, like, from the minute that Amador, that Philip puts Amador in the trunk, I'm like, okay, like, he's eventually going to die, whether it's this episode, whether it's in five episodes, who knows how long. Um... But so there's this, there's a a calmness around the like, okay, we know how we've dealt with this before. We know how to deal with this. And I think like on the flip side of that, right, the juxtaposition is Stan. And I I like the way that you pointed out his frenetic energy around this. I think that that is, that, 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 that's right. And it's like, he's sort of in a situation where he doesn't know what to do. Right. He doesn't really know how to be the one in control. And like, we've seen that develop throughout the last few episodes with the situation with Nina. Right. We sort of see that in his relationship with Gad. Um, We see that in his struggles with Sandy and the family. Like he doesn't know how to be the one calling the shots. He knows how to be the one deeply embedded, deeply invested, but like, this is different. And so all of it is like new territory and it's like, well, you're going to have to die too. Yeah. He no longer is the hyper institutionalized individual or hyper institutional actor. Yeah. Right. But rather he is 
personalizing and making the decisions, uh, enacting the kind of violent logic of the institution itself, except now it's channeled through his freneticism, through his emotional bond to Amador, through like his intense emotionality. Yeah. And I think this is maybe a good time to just sort of touch on the toxic masculinity of both of these, um, both the Philip, um, or rather the Clark, Chris interaction and also just like the entire thing around like Gad and the FBI's plan and the, the abduction that both of these scream of toxic masculinity to me. And particularly right. The, like, I think that is one way to understand the like stands movements and motions in this episode is just the, like the articulation of the manifestation of toxic masculinity. Exactly. And the certain, I mean, the, the always already bubbling, nearly emergent uh, violence that undergirds that masculinity, which barely takes anything to set it off into enacting violence as enacting overt violence as opposed to threatening violence or be committing a kind of more covert form of violence on a consistent basis. But like, that's such a hair trigger that of course, what happens in this episode at multiple levels to multiple characters is going to just so rapidly escalate and kind of over accelerate that sort of potential violence. that's always there. Absolutely. And I think like something sort of something else interesting along this line about the sort of the imminence of violence, like around this toxic masculinity, right. Is another juxtaposition that we get the sort of slow death of Amador. That is such a poignant and such a threatening, violent expression. And one of that, that clarity with which he moved and the decisiveness and the chillingness with which he moved then appears on his face. Well, and like that again is sort of against the backdrop of sort of a momentary indecisiveness or just a general indecisiveness around Stan before he's like on this path. So I'm, I'm interested to see like where this now goes. I'm interested to see where this goes because I like was taken aback by how decisive his movements are. And we've seen decisive killings before, right? Like we've seen Elizabeth, like just pull a gun out in the middle of suburbia and like shoot someone in the head. But Mm -hmm. Stan's gun has no silencer. It's just like it, it, the, the shot rings out. As you said, the body falls towards us. It's just like, it's really aggressive. And we've talked a lot about escalations in this episode throughout the season. But I think like, there was something about the like the sort of character escalate, escalation that um, that was really chilling. In particular, in the way in which Stan is using this hunting metaphor oh to <laughs> narrate or comment upon that escalation, yeah. And it's extended, right? This happens across two different scenes. The first scene at length, this whole thing about when you go out hunting for pheasants or ducks with your dog 
and you shoot it and your dog brings it back to you and it has soft mouth and you want it to have soft mouth so it doesn't kill the bird. And then the bird might try to run away. And the key is that you have to be decisive in killing it fast enough so it doesn't run away after the dog has done it in soft mouth. And there's some confusion that's going on in the Stan's telling of the metaphor as there is in my poor narration of it. And that Stan doesn't know whether he is the hunter or he is One, the dog. That's exactly what I was going to say, which is when I was watching, I was like, is Stan the hunter or not? Is Stan the hunter? Is Stan the dog? Is Stan the pheasant? Like, what's happening here? Mm-hmm. And then, and like, Stan doesn't know, and then Stan knows, right? Yes. Then, then Stan knows, and we all know. And I think we're surprised at the role that I, – I think we're surprised that Stan is the hunter. Yeah. The hunter, but, like, the hunter who still is kind of acting through the dog. So he's, like, still externalizing totally. this violence he's coming right? He So he says, my, gut, my bite will go hard. You will know you are dead before your heart stops. It's like a chilling line from Stan. Um, it doesn't necessarily – to your – multiple points this episode hasn't necessarily given us quite that no. expression of violence before. And then there's also when he calls Arcadi like to make the threat and it's like, uh, I will send you his balls to wear around your neck at the next May Day parade. Wild. Which I think we're meant to, or which I read as that is Stan channeling what Amador was, I was saying in that moment about to, to Arcadi. Well, and I think that that is, that the heel turn and, and the sort of some of these decisions do feel like channeling Amador and yeah. like that is matched in the episode by all of these flashbacks sort of like coloring that, right? Yeah. Oh, a really intense episode. <laughs> really intense episode. Very intense discussion of it. Um, should we go do some more, some, some nonsense to follow up that intense discussion? Yeah, let's dig into some of the, let's dig into some of the segments to maybe like let the air out a little bit before we ratchet it up again. Uh, yeah, there's plenty of ratcheting up to happen. Um, so first up we have Bar Nostalgia from the Unremembered 80s. Amazing. We still, we still don't know what the title is a reference st- to, even though we had three people who could have guessed it last week. Um, but I feel like. We soldier on. I feel like with my sisters, if it wasn't on, like, a weird Netflix show that combined, like, cake making and engineering and, like, (laughs) race car driving or The Real Housewives, like, then they were not going to get it. They're all brilliant, but, like, this doesn't feel like their lane of brilliance. Fair enough. I think we have one more guest coming up for the finale of the season um, here on Not Quite Great Books. I don't think he's going to get it. I think some of our possibilities we've discussed as guests for season two might get it. Okay. All right. Um, we have high so what, hopes. What, 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 you may have high hopes. Um, <laughs> my, my hope is that no one ever knows what it is and we get to have a dramatic, <laughs> I get to dramatically reveal it to you after building it up for 47 years as we do the Americans when we get to the finale. That's my, I'm hope. into it. I'm into um, it. What, what are, what, unremembered 80s things are you borrowing nostalgia for today listen we have to start off with the wigs because like (laughs) i just i can't not every time i watch this episode i'm like or uh, watch the show i'm just like so many wigs i felt like carrie russell's wig in the uh like the safe house wig was aggressively 80s in like a really intense way i was also similar with with like being afraid that Philip's wig was going to fall off. I was like, Amador just said that she was hot. And so I was waiting for the like, 
oh, the wig comes off or like he knows it's a wig. And then I'm like, Amador's not going to know it's a wig. This guy's an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the wig fools everybody apparently. Wild. um, (laughs) But also that you're right though, that that does point to the fact that there's that additional tension of will Chris recognize Elizabeth, even Elizabeth in disguise yeah. after having commented on her at the party in a like very creepy, brewy way to stand. Yeah. And I also just to go back to some of the points we were making before, it was like when I saw Elizabeth at the safe house in the wig and, and was afraid that Amador was going to know who she was. I was like, if, even if I wasn't sure from the trunk that he was going to die at the end of this episode, like he's got to die at some point because like either like he knows them or he recognizes her. Like there's too much knowing happening mm-hmm. here. There sure is. Um, speaking of the party, I think it bears mentioning yeah. that the terrible dude sweaters <laughs> is, so is a look in this episode oh. at the Beeman household. Like, Basically, all of the men have sweaters, and they're all ugly fucking sweaters, <laughs> followed by Clark's somehow even uglier sweater with turtleneck, of course, That's because, like, why, could, why or how could Clark exist without his fucking turtlenecks? But Clark's Somebody sweater... Somebody might recognize his neck. <laughs> <laughs> it really threw Tori off, so... Part, part, crucial part of the disguise is not the wig, but the neck. That's what Danielle and I have learned from the Doing the Not Quite Great Books uh, podcast is that next time we go undercover at a conference, Turtlenecks Turtlenecks. are ready to go. Um, You, me, and Elizabeth Holmes. Okay. okay, so next time we present together at a conference, we have to. Elizabeth Holmes outfits, one million percent. Um, just, I mean, the the sweaters are like it's they're there, Aggressive. they're aggressively there. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the last thing? Because I feel like this is a big, this is one from you. Um, it is, but I think it's one that we share. Oh, and totally. that is that in the Jennings entryway in the foyer <laughs> yeah. to their household, <laughs> on like the credenza or side table or whatever, there is this lamp that are like three great white, like ceramic, I'm presuming having lived at least in the, remembering the early 90s, even if I don't remember the 80s. Uh, it's just so garish and i love it so much and want it in my house in my apartment right now i love owls john knows this about me i love owls daniel has suggested owl accounts on instagram to follow have i followed them i sure have yeah (laughs) i want an owl tattoo so i just got really excited i had sort of seen this in an earlier episode and was like oh interesting like very 80s vibe but like it hadn't stuck in my brain so when you brought it up today i was like oh all i want to do is only talk about owls on this podcast so (laughs) thank you for that this will we'll also maybe we'll have an owl watch segment (laughs) okay great um i'm trying to see i'm trying i'm trying to make like an owl of minerva flies at the dusk no no the the cave is later (laughs) situation but i haven't quite gotten there uh i think i think it's time to go to minor character of the week yeah, I think we have the same minor character this week. It is. It can only be uh, Vlad Kosygin, uh yeah. played by Vitaly Benko, um, who obviously meets his end. If I remember correctly, we actually get him in a few scenes later in this season, kind of flashing back okay. to him. Um, but, I mean, we haven't spent a lot of time with Vlad. Like, the only things we know about him are that he's a little goofy and a little nerdy. 
he and Nina get along really well, or seemingly the two of them get along really well. Yeah. And he was Arkady's running buddy or jogging buddy. Like we don't have a whole lot of else about him. Yeah, but I will. I've that tracks with what I sort of. I think my my response to you when we were talking about who we should pick for minor character of the week is we've only known this guy for eight minutes. <laughs> um, but also like this actor does such a good job in this episode. Like yeah. he is so scared. And then the, re- when he's like, I am KGB, like there's something so heartfelt about that performance and it's so quick. And he's just like, like I just, I felt for him. So it like the, the performance really landed. Absolutely. So uh, we'll miss Maximiliano Hernandez. We'll miss Vitaly Binko. Although, like I said, I think Vlad's character does show up in a couple of flashbacks. Um, it's it's with it's with sadness question mark uh, <laughs> that we turn next to Daniel uh, Dossier. Um, the floor is yours, Daniel Dossier. First case closed. Case closed. Uh oh. Major major uh, case in Daniel Dossier this season has been that Amador is a double agent. For the KGB deeply embedded in the FBI and my friends, that is, in fact, not true. <laughs> it, it's not true. The case has been closed. Um, although I will say, Danielle, I would like to affirm this theory <laughs> and say that even if it was not technically true, I think you're vindicated by the thoughtfulness and depth and uh, comprehensiveness of the theory. I appreciate that. I appreciate um, that. And I think it's also worth saying that, you know, I don't think this is true. This is actually legitimately like this never comes up again ever in the in the show. But it's not 100% impossible for him to have been a KGB agent that no one knew about. So I want to leave open this tiny crime again. This is not like a fake yeah, flip, yeah, yeah. like misdirection or forewarning or anything. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. But like... We can't 100% rule it out. So that's another reason that I want to affirm your theory in the dossier. I'll take it. But I do think for the purposes of the dossier, we do need to move on. <laughs> yes. So. Uh, what what else is in the dossier this week? What has survived for another episode? Don't worry. What has survived is like <laughs> the kids know everything. At least Paige. Like, I, I'm sorry. The Paige's reaction to the separation and when she's like, what should I tell my friends? And just being like mm, bratty about point. it. Is on the on the one hand very eighties, on the other hand, like just feels to me like uh, another another entry into the dossier, into the file on Paige, knowing that her parents are spies. Can I add something to yeah. to your point? And that is in that conversation where she asks Elizabeth, well, "What do I tell my mm-hmm. friends?" Elizabeth tells her the truth. What does Paige say? What is the truth? So that's like an entry. And that that supplements your dossier entry this week, I believe. One million percent. I texted myself that line last night. (laughs) (laughs) What is the truth is literally the line for this entire show. (laughs) All right. Should we turn to gloss? Yeah, let's turn to gloss. Um, Fair warning, audience. Uh, if if there is an audience, let's be let's be honest here. Uh, we we a little bit sped through those earlier segments because we have a lot to say in gloss this week. A lot to say, and also like gloss is intense this week. Let's just let's put it like yep. that. I think yeah. we'll start somewhere a little bit less intense. Is just like the Chris and Stan friendship scenes, the sort of sepia toned or like yeah. slightly like fuzzy camera <laughs> scenes of them like in a car hanging out, like chatting. 
wild. Wild scenes. Well, well, we're saving the most wild part of it for the cave. Um, (laughs) Spoiler alert. But, I mean, it goes back to both clarifying Chris as a character and kind of giving him some of that emotional life or characterological life that hasn't always been there throughout the, the season so far. Do they do it in the most hokey possible way? <laughs> Friends, they do, as Danielle has pointed out. But the I'm glad those scenes are in there for yeah. the purpose of the deepening of Stan and Chris's characters and the relationship between them. And then for all of the ramifications that deepening have that you identified for the actual plot that's happening. Like, the there's some bizarre things that are happening in these flashbacks. Mm-hmm. And yet, they're there in a way that does a lot of the marrying of plot and emotional life that I'm here for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like as hokey as they are, they, they, I think they land well because they're like giving us this texture of their relationship, which like we already gotten a sense of because I think Stan's like not going out to the bar with like some random dude, you know, there are very few people in that office that could get Stan to like leave his desk. And Chris is one of them, right? Stan is either at his desk, seeing Nina at home or playing racquetball with Philip. Those are the only four things that he does. He's got four set pieces and those are them. (laughs) (laughs) What else do we have in gloss here? Uh, Just a great, uh, a great line from Stan, an unexpected line from Stan yeah. or Stan's character is when Chris is like, you know, being like, oh, your neighbor is so hot. Speaking of Elizabeth and Stan's, which he's pairing with bug with bugging Stan about not yeah. at first saying he's going to participate in the extrajudicial killing mission. Yeah. Um, and Stan just says, you're a putz. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> And I just wasn't expecting putts out of the character of Stan. No, but I, like, appreciate that it's Chris that brings it out of him. Wonderful. Very, very true. There's one aspect of the Stan-Chris-Stan-Vlad situation that we haven't touched on, mm-hmm. Danielle, and that is how Nina has a short scene with Stan. Yeah. And, but there's a lot of Stan and Gad talking about Nina. Absolutely. And I think, like... The the thing that was striking to me was when Gad is like, Stan knows like who your source is on the inside. And and Stan is like, or rather, Chris knows who your source is on the inside, and Stan is like, he did not give her up. And Gad's like, like, how can you know that? Which I think is like Gad is standing in for the audience there, like, how can you know that? And Stan just like is so solid in his conviction about it. So much so that he's like my life, her life and my life on it. Right. Like, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. again is like something that gets built up through the episode that he really does trust Chris. But also Chris has done this like wild thing, which is pull a knife on Philip for sort of like no connected reason. Yeah. And the way that you frame this, I think clarifies one of the emotional questions that I had the first time that I watched mm-hmm. this episode. And that is given how much Stan is like head over heels for Nina in this particular episode, in this emotion, these emotional moments in relation to Chris's um, abduction. And then they find his body um, as well. 
he is willing to value the friendship or the deep relationship he has with Chris in that particular set of circumstances over his head over heels infatuation that is creepy as hell with Nina. Yeah. And that only works if the show has done some of the emotional deepening of Stan and Chris and their relationship that you and I have been talking about this episode. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. And I think, again, like this episode is really intense. There's a lot there's a lot happening and a lot for us to talk about. But one thing I really think it is, is like a triumph of of the character development that maybe like had been missing or lacking before. I think like the one thing I would say is like, I wish we had gotten a little bit more of, of Chris before this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Besides him just like kind of being Stan's creepy partner and like creepy Martha's creepy ex, ex boyfriend. I think that's exactly right. Um, and this, I think, picks up on something else we were talking about earlier, and that is the way in which these sets of circumstances really bring out the worst of Stan and everybody else's toxic masculinity. Like, Stan, obviously, is just in a blanket, universal state of coercing Nina 100% all the time. Yeah. And now he has added on top of that, like, he physically, like, hurts Nina yeah. in this episode. Yeah. And, like, pulls, like, pulls her, like, grabs her arm, pulls her in. Nina says that, like, you're hurting me. And so Stan is at this place in which he is willing to escalate his yeah. coercion and violence towards Nina over Chris. It's, like, a little bit heartbreaking, right? It's yeah. a little bit heartbreaking to to see, but consistent with his character. And, like, yes. once he's all in, he's all in. So we've talked a lot about Stan and Chris, Stan and Nina, um... But do we maybe want to take a minute to talk about a different, sort of more perhaps surprising pairing, Sandy and Elizabeth, earlier on in the episode? Yeah, and it's something that the show has actually built up a tiny bit, right? We had we saw the dinner between, or the wine time between Sandy and Elizabeth <laughs> earlier when neither Philip nor Stan were able to be there. Yeah. Um, and we get this scene at the party with the emotional dynamics and repression and what is happening here that Danielle and I have already discussed. And Sandy said, you know, I was reading by the window last night or the other night. I saw Philip leaving. I wasn't spying, yeah. but like, what's going on? How, how did you react to that scene that, I, or that moment in that scene? I really laughed at that line because it's like, of course, Sandy wasn't spying because like, She's not, not the spy. Right. But I was like, it's just funny that she's saying it to Elizabeth and that Elizabeth like has a straight face. Because if I were Elizabeth, I would just start laughing. Because Elizabeth is literally spying on the demons in that exact moment in their home yeah, at yeah, this yeah. party with all of Stan's <laughs> FBI bros. And like her whole life is spying. And Sandy's whole life is like sort of encased in domesticity, right, yeah. in this house. And so it, it is interesting, right, that she's like, in still in the house looking out but like ultimately she's in her house and philip and elizabeth are like the opposite of of in of in their house all the time exactly um i we will see this but sandy 
gets us, I think it's in season two or season three, where there's this plot line that actually puts her and Philip in conversation with one another in a way that's a little bit similar to some of the dynamics that are starting to happen with her and Elizabeth here. Okay. Um, That I, that I, I'll be interested then to see how that particular thought you're making extends to those, to those scenarios as well. Um, One other Beeman Jennings pairing that happens at the party are Paige and Matthew sitting on the stairs, right? The two teens or (laughs) preteens, I guess in uh, Paige's case, um, apart from the rest of the party. That pairing is just like, it's a real will they, won't they? (laughs) (laughs) I've been watching Bridgerton all weekend. So like the will they, won't they vibes of Paige and Matthew are just electric. Do you want to do you want to make a will they won't they prediction for I mean, Daniel they Bossier? Will. I like okay. the, the older teenage son of the neighbors like it, it, like in the suburbs of Virginia yeah, they will. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Come on. Do you have any thoughts on how that will they that they will interacts with your other key page Daniel Dossier entry? I really hope it leads to Paige finding the, like, closet in the laundry room. <laughs> ah, okay. Good. Very good. I, I like this addition into the dossier. Yeah. A late a late addition, but an important one <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> uh, let's see. I think we have mostly just uh, strange things have that come up in the rest of Glass, but or maybe not so strange. The camera work in the opening scene mm-hmm. of the Jennings separation announcement in the immediate aftermath is really lovely, I think. You have the cuts between all of their faces as they're going around yeah. the table that are not 100% perfectly synced up with who is talking, so you get to see some facial reactions as well mm-hmm. is really nice. The shot of Philip like sitting huddled in the like against the corner of the two walls that come together right outside Henry's door while Henry is sitting like scrunched up, like knees folded up into him at the, like on the floor at the foot of his bed was a nice pairing that then gets echoed when Philip leaves the house with his stuff. Elizabeth is kind of like slouching, but also like very purposeful um, looking out the, the front window. Yeah, which then, like, right, we get the the other side of that from Sandy of, like, the I wasn't spying, right? Perfect. Perfect. Great catch. Great catch. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I, so <laughs> we got to talk about Clark's wig. Uh, we got to talk about Clark and Martha. <laughs> yeah. First, let's start with Clark's wig. The Please. I was really worried that his wig was going to fall off. <laughs> There are multiple places at which it can happen. I was like, how does the wig stay on while he's sleeping? Like, if you're tossing and turning, is the wig staying on? Danielle pointed out there's another way in which it's miraculous the wig stays on. When they are having, like, the most aggressive sex that we have seen this entire season, I'm like, how is the wig still on? What is holding that wig on? (laughs) Like, really, what is holding it on? And it's it's strong enough that after he has had sex with Martha, slept there overnight, rushed out in the morning, he like, I mean, maybe he could have had time to do more stuff to it if he's doing more stuff to it. Then he gets into a fight with Amador. And to your point there, we the wig could come off 
and it stays on nonetheless. It's a miracle. It stays on the whole time. Also, I do want to point out that Philip wakes up in bed. Um, I'm anxious about his wig like being askew, and he like quickly puts his glasses back on. <laughs> the key to the disguise. <laughs> the second key, turtleneck number one, his neck exposed at this point. I know. So like giant warning right there. Huge warning. Don't worry, Martha is none the wiser. <laughs> She's prepared a beautiful breakfast in bed. Looks like some toast, some jam. There's a grapefruit there. There's a little, like, tasteful one flower and a tiny vase. Like, beautiful spread. It does feel um, very 80s also. Like, the, <laughs> the grapefruit. It's, <laughs> like, aggressively 80s. Um, yeah. Puts the glasses back on. Wig is still on. Like... <laughs> I mean, do we want to talk a little bit about, like, the aggressiveness of their sex? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, A, there's a lot There's a lot there. The the one, one thing I will say about Martha's dirty talk is that... Wild. Perfect, perfectly written for Martha, the character, yes. and the way that Allison Wright plays the yes, character absolutely, of Martha. absolutely, absolutely. Whether that particular dirty talk would work in any other context, I, <laughs> real or fictional, I have questions. Same. But in that moment, for that character, okay. It's it's actually very, very true to form, I think. I also, like, do really appreciate the Philip as Clark trying to stay in character as Clark. And yes. I think in yes. like he's got some like Matthew Reese's face facial expressions, like his face acting is just like top tier because he simultaneously is like having this aggressive sex and also like sort of rolling his eyes about what she's saying. Right. Like we get like yes, a lot of the sort how of, I read that as well. Yeah. And like, that's not the first time where we've gotten sort of both of him in the eyes. That Martha's not picking up on. Yeah. Well, in this case, because, like, they're having sex doggy style. <laughs> yeah, she's, very, she's on, her face is the other way. <laughs> um, yeah. And, I mean, and it's after that scene, right, like, in the post-coital glow that there is this moment where Martha professors her love to Clark and demands that Clark assure her that this is real. And Clark says it is. I was worried that she was going to be like, do you love me? And then he was, I really was like, oh no, like the answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it like all of this did bring up the question to me. Like, like, is this going to unravel? I mean, I suspect like plot wise, it has to at some point, but there is like something so naive about Martha um, that makes all of this believable, right? Like, yeah, that's a that's a really useful way to put it because on some level she has some sense of what is happening because she's constantly at this point. This is the second episode in a row where she is offering to get info yeah. from or about Gad or yeah. the documents that Gad entrusts her with to Clark. Mm-hmm. And yet I, in spite of, or because of that, we could get into some like repression or sublimation talk here um, is very insistent on the thing between her and Clark being real yeah. and being genuinely loving. Yeah. Even as on some level she is acting, if not necessarily reflecting upon the 
instrumentality of it. Yeah, that she's got anxiety around the instrumentality of it, but that that doesn't color her, like, then she also has feelings for Clark, right? Like, and that those things, she's like, we can hold both of those things simultaneously. Perfect. Um, There's one more thing in glass. Um, (laughs) I think Danielle didn't want to talk about this, but I'm going to insist. No, I'm, I like, am here for this. I just think the whole situation is wild. (laughs) So the Americans is not a show. I don't think that very frequently, almost ever goes in for pure absurdism or pure surrealism. And yet in this episode, full of all of this crazy, these like crazy, emotionally intense, plot intense things that we've identified, there's this moment where Vlad's like in his like tracksuit, knocks on Arkady's door, and it's like, Arkady, come on, <laughs> it's time for our weekly run together in the fucking park. And Arkady holds up his bandaged hand and is like, I burned my hand when the potato, I picked up a potato that had exploded in the microwave. They're going to grab do a skin graft. What the fuck? There's an ex- like Arkady is saved by the fact that he picked up an exploded potato in the microwave. What is happening? And is this actually the Americans? The skin graft comment, I think, is the whole is the thing that make is that puts this over the top. It's just like what? Why? Why are we getting these details? Like, what's happening here? And I I have no other explanation for this other than they're like. We don't do a lot of pure absurdism, and this would be a fun time to do it, and it solves a plot problem for us. Yeah, like, like this is a sort of like, why not? You can like envision that in the writers' room, someone was like, "Here's a here's a reason a Russian would not be able to go for a run." Like a silly reason that like got put on the board as a as a placeholder and then stay like stays in there. <laughs> there. Yeah, and everybody was like, actually this really works and we can bandage his hand and I have this great skin graft line that we can put <laughs> yeah. out there. Yeah, it's like word bingo. <laughs> oh, so shout shouts to Arcadi, shouts to his hand, and most of all, Danielle, shouts to the potato. Shouts to the listen, as as like an aggressively Irish person, shouts to the potato. <laughs> Like we have to, there's a, a, I've got a tiny digression. (laughs) Oh, I, I'm excited. I have no idea where this is going and I can't wait. So one of my best friends from college who very well might be listening to this, uh, shouts to Yehuda. Um, after college, when I lived in the city, I would like go to his, his family's house for Shabbat dinner all the time. And like, (laughs) he just like really got a kick out of like my Irishness. And so he would like sometimes just like put a potato in a bag on the table and be like, in case there's another famine. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And I like Um, can't think about potatoes in everyday life without being like, where is my potato in a bag? (laughs) I will say this. That move from Yehuda is on the same level as the potato exploding in the microwave. One million percent. But the thing that's, like, so funny is that, like, he will still send me articles. We have been friends for, like, 15 years. 
he will still send me articles sometimes about like the return of the potato famine or like the history of potatoes in Ireland. And like on a different episode, I'll, I'll give a deep dive into like why on St. Patrick's day we eat corned beef and cabbage and like how that's like because of Jewish influence on the Lower East side, like we'll get there. I'm, I'm ready for whenever you feel the time is right or not right. I don't care <laughs> for that. I'm, yeah. I'm interested. But, you know, this has been our, you know, shouts to Yehuda <laughs> potato <laughs> deep dive, um, I, which I also think is probably, potatoes probably are, is a good way to transition into <laughs> games. <laughs> Because potatoes grow in caves? No. Like I know that I know they don't. Ground? <laughs> Dark? <laughs> um, I guess we're going to the cave. I think we might keep this cave shorter because I mean the 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 obvious cave is to return to our friend Nikki, our friend Machiavelli. Um, but we're gonna try to save that for only once per season because yeah. that probably is every episode. We can do because Machiavelli as, every episode. As we've established, the key to explaining the Americans is the little known Machiavelli play, the Mandragola or Mandrake Root. Like that is that is the one the, million the percent. One million percent. It's like including this episode, one might add, and Martha and Chris and Clark, but that's a different story for a different cave. In this cave, we're bringing with us today Jean Paul Sartre, uh, who generally I'm a fan of, but we're going to pick on Jean Paul Sartre uh, in this episode today. It's a way to comment on the fucking absurd. This is the other moment of absurdity in this episode other than the potato. And thus Danielle's segue was actually indeed a segue. Um, to Links for days. Chris's life philosophy. <laughs> Chris's life philosophy that he explains to Stan in the car, which I think we're meant to, or which I interpret as, 81% this is just a pure joke that he's pulling on Stan to like ball out this ridiculous metaphor and 19% actually Chris Amador the character's guiding life philosophy I I feel like those percentages are perfect Thank you. and like 1 million percent agree <laughs> so Chris tells Stan that life really, or that pussy, quote unquote, which I would never say in any other <laughs> yeah. context in this particular way. It's so like, really I don't, I don't love, I don't love this happening, but like, I'll do it for the pod. Okay. Um, like the pussy is life. According to Amador, um, it's both real and not real. It is the whole enchilada. It's all, <laughs> it's, I, can't. I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> it's also a metaphor. The Sartre, the Sartre connection, which we're grasping towards uh, badly, is that as Wendy Brown, among others, have correctly pointed out, like Sartre really loves talking about like the vagina as sticky, as a whole, yeah. as void, as disgusting, as gross, as abject, as all of those things. And so I think that the connection that I'm trying to make is that Chris Amador's life philosophy on quote-unquote pussy is actually Sartrean in its nature. Thoughts? I can't believe how many times in this segment you've said pussy. (laughs) (laughs) So, one. Amazing. Oh, my God. Two. Yeah, I mean, I buy it, especially because, like, I, I do think the like absurd connection, the absurdity connection is important yes. where it's yes. like, 
there is so much of Sartre's work that is illuminating, that's interesting. But the minute he he like tiptoes down the like gender and or sexuality like road, it's like abort mission, abandon ship, like everything is terrible here. Somebody who is literally in a thruple with two women for for much of his life. Well, he's like, he and like Simone de Beauvoir are like functionally ethically non-monogamous before that was a term in widespread use. And like, granted that has existed in any number of forums across time and we understand that, but like he and de Beauvoir like had a legitimate open relationship yep. that seemingly worked for all parties involved. Absolutely. And like, like the, but like the fact that he's in a throuple with de Beauvoir and different other women at different points, it, but like one for, for a longer amount of time, it's like, and this is the dude who's like, vaginas are sticky. Like, get out of here. Yeah. Like, get out of here. Yeah. Um, and we also should take this opportunity while we're in the cave to and a related note, point out Luce Irigaray's psychoanalytic feminist reading of Plato's cave called Plato's Hystera, which uh, reads the cave as a like gynophobic, uh, patriarchal uh, commentary metaphor, like uh, fantasy and the psychoanalytic sense reenactment of the womb slash the uterus slash the vagina. Sartre is not into being in the cave. And, and we are chaining him down here. So, like, buckle up. Buckle up, babe. Buckle up. We got to get out of the cave this week. We got, yeah, we're, I, I would like to stop. <laughs> we started this episode on a really, like, intense note, yeah. and we've ended the episode on an absurd note, and I love that for us. I feel yeah. like that is our brand. It. It is very, very on brand, very, very consistent, um, and that, and that's why the throngs of listeners that we Bronx. definitely have keep returning. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, join us next week when we tackle season one, episode ten, only you. And of course, as always, thanks to producer Amy, um, and. Thank you for joining us on Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It was created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball. Oh, um, I, I don't. So I don't have a. I don't, I, don't, I don't have a transition to the next thing. <laughs>